and I'll say, if I were in bunch of, of fun, uh, in front of a group of students, I'd say, okay, which, which one of these branches is dead and which one is alive? And, and it, it typically happens that, you know, somebody very bright says, you know, this one is dead and this one is alive. And, but if I just wait, the real scholar will say, you know, they're both dead. And I will say, right, why is they're both dead? Well, they're both disconnected from the source of life. Now, one looks better than the other. One may be able to get away in sort of public by being alive. But we know if we just left these here on the table, it wouldn't be too long before this one looked like this one. And really, that's the whole message of of John chapter 15 in these opening verses. The the real question for us as we go through the Gospel of John is, are you connected to Jesus Christ? If you are, you have life. If you don't, you do not have life. It's really not that more, much more complicated than that. The, the problem is a lot of us are connect, all of us are connected to something. And it can, for a while, look like life. I couldn't tell you how many high school students in my time with Young Life would feel like they're connected to things that are really life-giving. And they'd say, Paul, I mean, I'm happy to hear about the Jesus thing, but I've got it going on. And there really wouldn't be anything I could say to move a kid away from that point until he realized whatever he invested in, that sap stopped flowing. And pretty soon he or she thought, well, you know what? I'm starting to feel a lot more like this. And then at that point, I would say, see, you're really connected to the the wrong source. What you thought was going to give you life isn't actually going to give you life. So that's really the message. I could probably just pray right now and end. And some of you go, amen, preach it, brother. Um, but that's what we're that's really what we're talking about. Jesus is trying to get he, he's 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 moving towards the cross and he's trying to get the critical information on the lowest shelf. So it just doesn't take anything to understand the illustration. You don't need any particular background. And that's really what he's doing here in John chapter 15. If you remember in John chapter 14, you'll see that uh, Jesus is on the move. At the end of John chapter 14, it says he's speaking to the disciples in the upper room. And he closes this, this speech with, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then rise, let us go forth. And so Jesus is on the move from the upper room towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And so when his disciples are leaving the other upper room, Judas has already left. And we don't know exactly what path they took or what prompted Jesus to use this particular illustration. It's possible they went by the temple grounds and in and around the temple there were vines Uh, Some of them were real vines, some of them were painted vines, and maybe they're going by the temple and this vine catches Jesus' eye. Maybe they move outside of the walled city of Jerusalem into the the Kidron Valley where the the olive orchard is that contains the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's a, a little patch of a vineyard somewhere, and he passes by on his way. But regardless of how he comes up with the picture, he uses the vine... 
as, as a word image for his disciples. And he uses it to make it the last of his famous I am statements that are found throughout the Gospel of John. And you'll remember them. John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So there's six different big I am statements. And then here is the seventh and the last one. I am the true vine. Each each statement meant meant to separate Jesus from everything and everyone else. I am separate. I am unique. I am something different than anything else that you've come in contact with. And Jesus is reminding his disciples because he's going to the cross and they're going to have a sense of being cut off. And he's trying to say, I, I want you to remember that if you get cut off from the true vine, then you can do nothing. And in the Greek, that word nothing means, well, it means nothing. And, and we might just want to pause and consider whether we actually believe that word from Jesus. Do you are you really convinced that apart from Christ, you can't do anything of any lasting value? See, when I hear that, I want to say, oh, well, okay, come on. I mean, maybe that's like hyperbole. It's just overstating something. And Jesus said, no, no. Apart from me, you can't do anything. And it's going to be so easy for the disciples to drift, to, to move away like sheep. They're going to drift away. And, and when they drift away, part of their thinking may be, I'm really accomplishing something now on my own. And he's trying to get his disciples to say, you always have to be connected to me. The word he's going to use in this passage is you have to be abiding in me. And so I want to look in, 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 at this passage and highlight three things First, I want to just talk briefly about the true vine, and Jesus is calling himself the true vine. Secondly, the abiding in this vine, and then finally, the pruning of this vine. So the true vine, how do we abide in the vine, and then what is Jesus talking about in terms of pruning? Now, you know when, you, when you're reading especially the Gospel of John, but really almost anywhere in the, else in the New Testament, so much of the Old Testament is embedded in the text. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you read by just like this. You think, okay, he walks by, he sees a vine, he just talks about the vine. And, of course, he does do that, but the vine actually is a shadow. It's an illustration. It's, a, it's an image borrowed from the Old Testament. It's not just a vine that's growing on a, on a pole or on a wall somewhere. And, and you'll remember that previously in the Gospel of John, John has used this Old Testament language to point to uh, Jesus. The, the Old Testament is a book of history and also a book of shadows. And so when John the Baptist, early on in the book of John, says, Behold the Lamb of God who, what? He takes away the sins of the world. When he's saying that, everybody understands the, the freight that's coming with it from the Old Testament into the New Testament. 
that this Passover lamb that they're familiar with from Exodus chapter 12, that if you would gather your family inside your home and you would take an unblemished lamb and you would kill the, the lamb and you would spread the blood over the doorpost, when the, the angel of death comes down, when the angel of death and judgment sees the blood of the lamb, death passes over you. And John is saying, now here's the real Passover lamb. That was just a shadow. That was just a visual illustration to get you ready for the real Passover lamb. That if you stand underneath the blood of the lamb, when death and judgment comes down, it passes over you because Jesus absorbs that on your behalf. And so here we have the same thing in the vine. Now, if you would, just turn back in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 80. Psalm chapter 80, and we're going to read several verses here just to give you a sense of where this illustration is coming from. And there are many passages in the Old Testament we could pick, but I think this is the one that's most obvious. Psalm 80, beginning in verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Well, what is he talking about there? He's talking about the people of God. He's talking about the Israelites. He's, this, some vine has come out, and so there's a vine And you drove out the nations that you planted. You cleared the ground. You took deep root. You filled the land. You you did all these things. It sent the, the vine sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. And so you get this idea. They've, the vine has moved into the promised land. It's spreading out just as God wants the vine to do. Why then have you broken down its walls so that you who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the in the field feed on it. So something's happened. The vine is spread out, but now some enemy has come in, and they've let the enemy in. And then they cry out, turn again, O God, look down from heaven and see, and have regard for this vine, the people, the stock that your right hand planted for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. They've cut down the vine. Verse 17. But let your hand be on the man, your right hand. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. When your hand is on the son of man, then we shall not turn back from you. You will give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And so in the Old Testament, the the Israelites were the vine. And they're saying, hey, we've been cut off. And we need you to come and restore us. And you need to restore us by your the son of man, the person that's on your right side. Now, we all know who that is now. That's Jesus. And so when Jesus comes... In John chapter 15 now. And look what he says. He says, he's not just saying, I am a vine. He's saying, I'm the true vine. There, there was a shadow of a vine in the Old Testament. But now there's the true vine. The true vine. The, the Son of Man has come. And if you get connected to Him, He's the way to show you to life and to God. And so that's what he's talking about. He is the true vine. Secondly, he then asks us to abide in him. And you see 
that is several places. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. D.A. Carson, a, a real great biblical scholar, wrote a book called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And in the introduction of the book, he asked this question. What's the most urgent need in the church of the Western world today? What's the most urgent need in the church of the Western world today? Maybe it's sexual purity or a reorientation about wealth and materialism, or maybe it's the urgent need for evangelism. Carson says, clearly all these are important. But the one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. And so if his assessment is right, that really these other things that we talk about, sexual impurity or materialism or a lack of evangelism, they, they really, Carson's saying, they all really come out of this root that we really don't know God well. If we knew God better, then these things would naturally be produced. And so in order to know God better, we have to abide, to, to remain. We have to be united to, we have to live in, we have to be in constant connection to. And, and the imagery is pretty straightforward. It's just like the vine and then the branch. There's, a, there's sap that's moving through the vine and into the branch that's giving the branch life. And if that ever gets disconnected, then we don't have life anymore. And this, this sap, this life-giving um, element is the, the Word of God. If you abide in me, verse 7, and my words abide in you. See, if you get connected to me, what's going to be flowing out of me into you that's going to give you life? My words are going to give you life. And three things about this word. Jesus' words are powerful because they are God's words. John chapter 3, verse 34, Jesus says, For the one whom God has sent speaks... The words of God. So one reason Jesus' words are so life-giving is that he's saying, when I speak, God is speaking. He's, he's flowing into your life. That's why you need to pay attention to the words. When, when, when the guards come to arrest Jesus, not in the Garden of Gethsemane, but before, the Pharisees sent a, a, a little uh, um, group of guards to get Jesus and they stand, you don't quite, you have to sort of infer, but apparently they stand and they listen to Jesus for a little while and then they're sort of waiting for their time to arrest Jesus. And then they don't arrest Jesus and they go back to the Pharisees. You remember this? And the Pharisees say, why didn't you bring Jesus back? And what do they say? No one's ever spoken like this. See, when, when Jesus speaks, it's God's word. And so when he's speaking, life is coming out. That's, that's why Christ Community Church wants, why I and Christ Community Church want to have your nose buried in the Word of God. That's why we're going through verse by verse. So this is, this is the life-giving Word. It's not an illustration. It's not something off the Internet that I read this week. It's, this is it. This is what we need in order to move forward 
And so Jesus, when he speaks, he's speaking God's word. Secondly, the words of Jesus illuminated by the work of the Holy Spirit are life-giving. John chapter 6, Jesus says this, The Holy Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. So the Spirit of God gives life through the Word of God. The Spirit of God gives life through the Word of God. And I I just want to say that one more time. Amen? Okay. Sorry, I was at New Beginning there for a moment. The Spirit of God gives life through the Word of God. And and the reason I just want to say that over and over so it's in your head is because it, it seems to me that I've gotten into these discussions with people recently about the work of the Holy Spirit. And and in these discussions, somehow what I feel like, and I'm I'm not blaming them as what they're saying. I may be a poor receptor. It just feels like somehow the word of God gets disconnected from the work of the Holy Spirit. Like there's somehow two different things. And, of course, they're not perfect images of each other, but there's a tremendous amount of overlap. And when I get in these discussions, it just feels like that gets disconnected. And I want to make sure there's a a strong connection in your mind here. I I would say that there's a tremendous overlap uh, because one of the main works of the Holy Spirit is to shine the light on the word of God. And one reason I say that is because it's bracketed in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. So Jesus in John 15 is saying, you got to be connected to me and the spirit is giving you the words of God. That's how you're going to stay alive. And in John chapter 14, he talks about the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 16, he talks about the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. John 14, all this I have spoken while I'm with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the God will send, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you. Okay, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to be like a replacement for Jesus. But instead of having to go see Jesus personally, the Holy Spirit's now going to indwell you. And he's going, he's, he's going to teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. You hear that? The Holy Spirit's going to come and what his primary purpose is, is just to help you remember what I said. John chapter 16. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. When he comes, he will guide you into all truth. He doesn't speak on his own. He speaks only what he hears. He's taking from what is mine and he's making it known to you. So the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to bring the words of God into your life. And we have to remember that. Finally, on this particular point about abiding in Christ in terms of the word of God, the word of God gives strength to conquer evil. John, you know, he writes the gospel of John. He writes Revelation and he also writes three little letters appropriately called. First, second, and third, John. Okay, not hard. And in First John chapter 2, he writes this, very important. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. 
I write to you, young men, because you are strong. Now, he's going to tell you why they're strong. But my question is, if, if you were saying, OK, young men today, they're strong when they what would you say? What makes a young man strong? I mean, is it physical strength? Is it his, his financial acumen? Is it, is it the way he looks? Is it something with his mind? What, what would you say? Boy, that's a strong individual. And John tell, tells us, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, because the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So, so if you're a young man, and you're struggling against evil. Let me just say, not if. Because you're a young man and you are struggling with evil. And I would just say this about everyone, but this text is directly towards young men. Young men, when you leave this place, you don't even have to leave this place. But when you leave this place and you drive down and the billboard is there, or you're in line of the grocery store and the magazines are there, when you go to your computer, when you turn on your television, when you choose to go to a movie, when evil is pursuing you, when evil is roaring like a lion, seeking to devour you, how is it at that moment you can be strong? How is it? To just say no? No, you better have the Word of God buried in your soul so that when you come against evil... You're not going to make it on your own. You have to have the word of God. This is exactly what Jesus did. He goes out to the wilderness and Satan comes to him. And every temptation, what is, how does Jesus repel every temptation? He just quotes out of the book of Deuteronomy every single time. So whether you're a young man here or a young woman or an old man or an old woman, if you're struggling against something, the way you're going to overcome that something is not on your own Account is going to be by the word of God working through you, working through your mind, working through your members. And that's how you abide in Christ. Two questions just on this point in way of application. If you abide in Jesus. If Jesus's words are are flowing into your life then it should have an effect on your life. And it should it be a noticeable, it should be a noticeable effect. And John says it in verse 5, you should be bearing fruit. I mean, when you go by a tree, an orange tree, I mean, unless you know what an orange tree looks like, the only reason you know it's an orange tree is why. There's an orange hanging on it. And you might think it looks like an apple tree until, whoa, hey, that's an orange. You can't tell what the tree's like until it bears fruit. And so my question is, if you're here saying, I'm really connected to Christ, then it should be obvious in somewhere, not in perfection, but it should be obvious just as if you were passing a tree that had fruit on it, that somebody could look at you and say, well, I can see that they're bearing fruit. So are you bearing fruit? If you're not, then what would you want to check? If you're really connected to the vine. See, because you could come to church. 
And you can look like this for a long time, but not really even bear any fruit. If you are abiding in Jesus, his words are working into your life. This is the second point of my application here. My question is, are you somebody who wants Jesus but not his commands? The reason I ask this is because I go through the Gospel of John with people with some frequency. I'm doing it right now. I met with somebody yesterday. I'm meeting somebody Wednesday, hoping to start a conversation. I'm not, I don't know the person. I'm just saying, hey, I'm going, at the end of the, my conversation, I'm going to say, hey, would you like to go through the Gospel of John together? It's not that complicated. And he may say no. Um, and I understand because I've been a fool before. I understand that. But but a lot of times when you when I go through the Gospel of John with somebody, uh, there's a frequency of this occurring. I'm attracted to Jesus. I maybe believe in Jesus, whatever that is. But I'm just not interested in seriously taking seriously his commands. And so so as I go through, as I reach towards the end of the book, I, I ask the people who are like that, hey, there, there's there's not it's not two different ways to follow Jesus. The, the Jesus that I like and then the commands that I don't like are over here. That's not the way. If that's the way you're following Jesus, you're not following Jesus. You're following the Jesus that you're making up in your mind that you would like to follow. And so my question here, if you're in that category that you really are somehow attracted to Jesus, are you attracted to doing what he's commanding? Well, if you're going to live under the words of the Bible, which are described in Hebrews as sharper than a two-edged sword, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get pruned. And that's my final point here. C.S. Lewis, I love this quote in Mere Christianity. He says that he has a title, a chapter titled, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? The Christian way is different. It's harder and easier than you might think. Christ says, I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I haven't come to torment your natural self. Okay, great. I'm I'm for that. Hear that? I don't want so much of your time. I don't want so much of your money and so much of your work. No, I've not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill it. (laughs) Half measures are no good. I don't want to cut off a branch here or there. No, I want the whole tree down. You must hand over your whole natural self, all your evil desires, as well as all your good desires. I will instead give you a new self. I will give you myself. My own self shall become yours. And so probably the most disturbing part of this text to me is in verse 2. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Okay, I like that. I'm for that verse. 
great. If there's any dead wood in me, take it away. If, if people are really not connected to the vine, maybe the disconnection somehow shows them that they were connected to something false. I think we can all understand that. But then the, the verse doesn't end there. You notice it says, now every, every branch that does bear fruit, Okay, now, if you were just stopping before you read forward, okay, every branch that doesn't bear fruit gets cut off. Every branch that does bear fruit, what would you fill in? Jesus tenderly cares for. Jesus fixed every problem of the fruit-bearing branch. Jesus lets you go your own way. I mean, I could think of a thousand things I would like to insert right at that point. I am a fruit Bearing branch. Great. And what does Jesus say? I'm going to cut that branch. And I think we can just go ahead and say it out loud. That's an uncomfortable verse. I mean, we do understand the difficulty of being pruned if there's something dead about our lives. But if something's producing fruit, if there's something good, Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? Those those branches I'm. I'm going to I'm going to prune. Whether you're an individual, whether you're a family, whether you're a church. You could be right in the middle of bearing fruit. When the divine clippers come by. And what you thought was so good and was good. Is lying on the ground. Why? Why? I mean, this is a tough question. Something good is happening. I am being obedient. This obedience is bearing fruit. And you come by God and. And Jesus answers in order to bear more fruit. You see, you've been in in some kind of garden before. And you can see that um, something's growing and it's going to eventually bear fruit, but somehow it's going to suck too much unnecessary life out of the main stem. So you've got to cut that off. It's going to it's going to eventually not be that helpful. And so things that are flowering, things that are fruit bearing, you have to sometimes trim those things off. And to an untrained eye, which we have. It might not make any sense. And so every disciple has to learn to not lean on their own understanding. Because I know there are some here that are being pruned of real fruit. And they're thinking or saying, I don't get you, God. You're not like anything that I could have imagined. And what I can say is that we have an untrained eye. And that even when good fruit is cut off, it's for a more fruitful purpose. And I wonder if you have enough experience to know, yeah, I remember that time when a good thing got cut off. But, man, I'm glad it did because it really produced more fruit. Well, I would suggest that when you're in the time and you don't feel that way, the best place is to look is the cross. God's ultimate pruning, 
that bears much more fruit. You see, in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve were cast from the garden, what was what blocked their way back into the garden? Remember this? There was an angel. And what did the angel have? Had a sword, a flaming sword. It's moving every which way. The only way to get back into the garden, the only way to be restored, somebody has to go underneath the sword. Somebody has to be cut off. And who do we know that person to be? Jesus comes and he is cut off. And because he's cut off, he bears so much more fruit, which you are part of and I am a part of. And aren't you so grateful that he went underneath the sword to bear this kind of fruit? If he doesn't get cut off, we're going to get cut off. And so he comes and he bears the sword on our behalf so that we might be fruitful. And so when you say, God, it just doesn't make sense. You're you're cutting off something that seems so profitable, so magnificent. This is the, the thing that I had put all of my hopes in and was really bearing a lot of fruit. But you cut it off. What are you doing when you get to that point? You can look right here. And say that's what the disciples would have said on Friday and Saturday. You're cutting off the thing that's bearing so much fruit. And God is saying, you just don't see it right now. But it's possible that I'm cutting something off to bear much more fruit. Millions upon millions, it says in Revelation, are going to surround the table and I'm going to be one of them. And I'm going to say I'm the fruit of someone getting cut off. And so I have just a few questions as we come towards communion um, this morning. First of all, are you really connected to the right vine? Everybody's connected to some vine. But what are you re- what, what's really giving you life? What can you not live without? What if it gets cut off, you just can't move forward? Are you like the, vine, the green branch? You look good. You come to church and, man, you fool the pastor. But really, you're not bearing any fruit. You're cut off. Maybe you're here and you're just getting pruned of good fruit and it just it doesn't make sense. If you're not really connected to the vine, then I would suggest you don't come to the table. If you're hurting, if you've been pruned, then this is the place to come and find life. But if you're not really connected, this is the time for you and God to wrestle. Well, what am I connected to? Am I really going to be connected to this? Am I really going to obey his commands or am I not going to? Let me pray for us.